We are going to continue our study today through the book of Colossians. And as we do, I want to remind you all about the purpose of the book, which is to emphasize the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you read the book through in one sitting, uh, what you will see is that is the message that comes through, that Jesus Christ is preeminent over all of creation, over all of the new creation, over all things in the church, over all things outside the church, that Jesus Christ is preeminent. That He is the beginning of spiritual life. He is the middle of spiritual life. He is the end and the goal and the purpose and the point of every believer's life. And faith in Him is fully sufficient for every part of every believer's life and their advance toward godliness. And it's essential, it's essential for us as believers to bear those, those truths in mind. Because wherever there is the pure teaching about Christ, there is also on the perimeter of the community of God's people, there are the wolves circling the flock who are looking to snatch the immature and the unstable away from a life of simple devotion to Christ and the community of His people. And so, what we've seen up to this point in the book, we've mostly seen Paul make allusion to the false teaching that is spreading within and assaulting the Colossian church. But in this passage that we're going to look at today, Paul is going to come straight at it. He's going to name it and identify what's wrong with it and explain why that is an, in, not only an error, but will lead you away from your devotion to Christ and your experience of joy in relationship with Him. And so in this passage that we're going to look at, you're going to look at two twin dangers. They are, their names are legalism and asceticism. And then a third one that's a little bit different, it's mysticism. And all of these, I'll explain what all of these are in, uh, in more detail, but I personally think that God allowed all of these errors to arise in Paul's day and among this church, in, in the people in this church in Colossae, so that Paul could write to it. So that not only would the people in Colossae have a testimony as to what these errors are and how to avoid them, but also so that generation after generation of the church later reading this would have a plumb line to discern where the truth lies and where is out of plumb with God's Word. And so we have these things that enable us to separate truth from error uh, that work just as well today for us as they did back then for them. So we want to pray together one more time, and then we want to dive into God's Word. So let's do pray for our study of God's Word specifically right now. If you bow. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that, that we have a sure Word from outside that tells us how to follow You. That tells us how to know You, how to love You, how to worship You, how to understand uh, things about You. Father, without a certain word like this, 
that we can trust in and rely on, we would be left with the best guesses of people down here who have not seen Your face or beheld Your glory. But Father, the living Word speaks to us through the, the written Word. And we are enlightened. Our hearts are illumined to the truth. And we are drawn near to You as Your Holy Spirit works. Father, we pray Your Holy Spirit would work in us and illuminate the Scripture to us. Help us to not only see it and understand it, but to walk in it and follow it. Father, we love You. We love Your Word. Help us to love it more as we study it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to read for you, beginning in verse 16 down through verse 19, uh, what uh, Paul has to say to the Colossian church about these errors he is confronting. He says, beginning verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit, knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, if you look at verses 16 and 17, it addresses this error of legalism. Now, legalism is the belief that Christians need to live by the requirements of the Mosaic Law, and from very early on, it was a threat to the church. In fact, wherever Paul went on his missionary journeys, going about across the Mediterranean, planting churches, uh, right behind him would be a group of people uh, that are called in Scripture the Judaizers, who insisted that you had to uh, not only put your faith in Christ and become a Christian, but you had to then live like a Jew to be a real Christian and to be really saved. They insisted that, that Christians in, in particular had to keep the Mosaic Law with regard to the two things Paul identifies here, diet and days. Telling Christians that, for example, you had to keep kosher in terms of your, uh, your food and your drink, and you had to celebrate the feast days and worship God at the beginning of every month according to the new moon. And then you had to worship God and keep the Sabbath in the way that the Jews did every Friday night into Saturday evening. That You had to keep these things. It's a seductive error. It really is. In fact, a member of my family was once upon a time part of a cultic church that taught this called the Worldwide Church of God, founded by a heretic named Herbert W. Armstrong. And it's an enslaving system because you never are able to keep the law. But it's a seductive error because on the one hand, if you're a young Christian who really wants to grow in holiness, 
And if you're a young Christian who doesn't always quite understand how the Old Testament relates to the New, and how you're supposed to apply the Old Testament to your Christian life, along come false teachers. And they say things to you like this. The legalists will say this to you. It's simple. If you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus and keep the Mosaic law. That's what will make you holy. Will it make you holy? No. No. In fact, what the New Testament points out over and over and over again is that it is impossible to become righteous by keeping the law. That is part of the point. But a lot of people get seduced by it because they want to be good. And so they are told, believe in Jesus, keep the law, and you'll be good. But the truth is also, believe it or not, simple to understand. You need to hold fast to faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not that the law has no value. It has a value. But its value is anticipatory. And it's partial. It's designed to both point you to Christ and to point out the need for Christ. Because if you try to keep the law, you never know if you kept it even if you tried. In fact, part of Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is that even if you keep outwardly all the requirements that the law lays down, you can't keep them inwardly in your heart and you're still in trouble if your requirement is to keep the law. And by the way, that's the point that Paul is making in verse 17, that these things were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The dietary laws were not bad. In fact, if you, if you follow a lot of those principles, it will keep you from getting certain diseases. You know, you can't eat shellfish under the Mosaic Law. I happen to enjoy my freedom in Christ to eat lobster and shrimp. But if you get some that goes bad, you get very, very ill. Uh, same thing with pork. Uh, I enjoy bacon. I enjoy fat back and all these other kinds of things, right? Ribs, uh, ham, all of that. But in a day in which it wasn't cooked, you could get trichinosis and it would be bad. But the laws were not simply about your health. They were pointing out the need, the absolute need for purity, both body and soul. And so they were only partial. Because they could give you a pure diet. A diet that wouldn't make you sick. But they pointed to the need for someone who could purify both body and soul. Does Jesus do that, by the way? Yes, He does. But that's what the dietary laws were about. Only Christ could really cleanse and heal. If you believe in Christ, then what happens is this. That God really does cleanse us 
from sin. And he really does renew us in our souls. And he is one day going to bring complete renewal and healing and purification to us in our resurrection bodies. And by the way, the same kind of partial anticipatory uh, fulfillment is what you see in the new moon celebrations and the festivals and and feasts and the Sabbath, these things point toward things that only Jesus Christ could fully bring. He is the one who gives the true rest and the true peace with God that the Sabbath was meant to remind you of. Uh, He is the fulfillment of the Feast of Passover uh, that the the, uh, Feast of Passover pointed toward. That's what we celebrated today as we took communion. That Jesus is the fulfillment of that feast. He is the first fruits from among the dead. He is the one who sends the new wine of the Holy Spirit that they was fulfilled at Pentecost. He is the one who tabernacled with us. He is the one who brings atonement between us and God. And He is the one who will cause the trumpet to be blown that all God's people might assemble. He is the fulfillment of all these things. And so we don't need as believers to celebrate what is anticipatory any more than after a woman gets married, she continues to celebrate her engagement. After you get married, the fullness has come. Engagement's a big deal. It's something to celebrate. Every girl I've ever seen that gets engaged walks around like this. Hi, how are you doing? Right? And they want to show off that rock. And that's great. And it's a joyful thing. But when the wedding day comes, she doesn't do that anymore. Why not? Because if she has married a good man, the fullness of joy has come. And you don't need to celebrate the partial when the fullness is there. Now, let me also say this about the law. One of the other reasons that legalism is a seductive error is that it contains within it a measure of truth. Christians are still bound by the moral requirements of the law. In this sense, okay? Murder... Adultery, sexual immorality, and all of its permutations, coveting, idolatry, theft, lying, disobedience to your parents, and so on, are not all kosher now. They're not all okay with God because now we live under a new covenant and now we believe in Jesus. No, the moral requirements of the law still have to be followed and met. Thank God they are met on your behalf in Jesus but you yourself are still bound to obey God. And His moral law has not changed. And we still need to flee from sin and pursue holiness. But nowhere in... And and by the way, you can still do all of these things if you want to. If you want to set aside one day in seven as a special day for worship, you're free to do so. We choose to do so at our house. But it is a choice as a New Testament believer, and nowhere in the New Testament are you required to do so. If you want to celebrate each new, each new cycle of the moon, like a Jew, you can do that. 
I don't know how to do that. And I, it's not something that I would encourage necessarily. But you can do that if you want and give, give, give praise to God with each, the coming of each new month. If you want to celebrate Passover, you can. You have to know. And it won't make you more spiritual if you do or less spiritual if you don't. Now Paul identifies two more errors in verse 18, the first of which is asceticism. Asceticism is the twin of legalism and it doesn't in that it doesn't tie you to, to obedience to the Mosaic law necessarily, but to new rules that are made up by someone that are not necessarily based on Scripture. In fact, probably aren't. So an ascetic tries to grow his or her spirituality with a long list of do's and don'ts that go beyond what Scripture requires, and they often involve harsh treatment of your body. If you've read a little... Uh, medieval history, or maybe seen a movie that, that depicts medieval times, you'll see these people who cut a square out of the back of their robes so that they could effectively beat themselves with whips every day as part of their spirituality. That they would treat the body harshly in order to somehow purify their soul. By the way, can you mistreat your body enough to make your soul holy? No, you can't. Or you'll read about monastics who would, uh, would progressively get a smaller and smaller and smaller cell. Some of them got to where they could not even lay down to sleep on the hard floor of their room. There were others who, who tried to live on top of a pillar and then it got to be a measure of spirituality how high off the ground your pillar was. Well, now I need to go live in the desert. I need to live here. I need to live there. Is any of that commended in Scripture? No. No. It's not. In fact, one early church father went so far as to castrate himself so that he would not fall into sexual temptation. And then he found out that sexual temptation is not derived from an organ in your body, but from the bentness of your heart. And that's really the problem with asceticism. Is that you do have in some ways a partial truth that it presents. Because, for example, is fasting a good idea? Yes. Jesus, Paul, all of the apostles all participate in fasting. Many of the Old Testament saints participate in fasting. Is it required anywhere in Scripture? No. But God's people have done it, at least at times. It's not a requirement. Uh, nor, there's any, nor is there any other rule anywhere in Scripture uh, that tells you how you're to treat your body other than that you are to love it and care for it and to treat it as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place in which God's presence dwells. But there's no encouragement to beat yourself or to cut off parts of your anatomy or to only sleep on the hard ground or to only eat vegetables or anything else. Asceticism errs, first of all, by going on 
beyond Scripture. And then it errs, second of all, by creating mandatory practices that are ostensibly supposed to bring you closer to God, but in reality serve mostly to show everyone else how holy you are trying to be. And so then you become not more holy and submitted, but more puffed up by your own sense of your own self-righteousness. And by the way, it is much easier to cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye if you think they are leading you into sin than it is to cut out the sinful part of your soul. Which is what we're actually commanded to do. And one is obtainable by fleshly effort and the other requires the dynamic presence of the Spirit of God to accomplish. And the final error that Paul identifies in verse 18 is mysticism. It's what he's talking about when he refers to the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions. Mysticism is the belief that you need to approach God indirectly through some sort of spiritual experience in addition to Christ. Because by the way, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is a spiritual experience. Amen? But they want to add to that some other thing that allows you to experience some sort of, of, of power encounter that is going to be nourishing to your spiritual life. And so practitioners of, of mysticism frequently claim to have visions that give them secret knowledge about God that's not accessible through His Word. Or they engage in the worship of angels. They engage in various rites uh, that are ostensibly spiritual and that that are but that are kept secret so that only those with the inside track, only those who are part of the inner ring, so to speak, are able to engage in them. Now, again, I don't want to be unkind because I think that many people who get sucked into this are sincerely desiring to and seeking God. But there are today forms of Christianity where people will say things to you like, you need to pray to St. Michael. For example, who is St. Michael? Michael the archangel. What is prayer? Prayer is an act of worship. We are never told. In fact, any place where anyone prays or offers worship to an angel is rebuked for so doing in the Scriptures. And Paul says, do not pray to the angels. Prayer to anyone who is not God is idolatry. In the same way, seeking some kind of mystical encounter with God through some sort of secret rites is forbidden. It's wrong not only because it will lead you often astray into some sort of demonic deception. Because by the way, the demonic realm is very happy to ensure that you have a spiritual experience uh, with a member of the angelic realm, if that's what you're really seeking. But also because it has as its basis the assumption 
that the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence within your soul already isn't good enough. It's rooted in the same kind of discontent as you see in Eve in the garden where she's like, she, she listens to Satan who says, well, you know, God's really holding out on you. If He really loved you, He'd let you eat this fruit because He knows that if you eat it, you'll be like Him and He doesn't want you to be like Him and so you've got to do this. You've got to have this experience. It's a seductive error because it contains also a few grains of truth. Does God sometimes speak to people in visions and dreams? Yes, He does. Even today, God sometimes speaks to people in visions and dreams. But we are never commanded anywhere to seek them out. Or to seek them out as a as a primary or secondary or tertiary means of encountering God. We're never told anywhere that that's God's normal means of speaking to us as New Testament believers. Uh, if we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God and faith in the Son of God, then we need to worship God and we need to worship God fully and effectively and we have, therefore, everything we need to do so. Now, look closely with me at, uh, real quickly here, verses 18 and 19. What's the problem that Paul identifies? That the people who embrace things like these become puffed up in their sensuous minds. And they have not held fast to Jesus Christ, the head of the body of Christ. And they are trying to make other people feel disqualified from real Christianity. They're trying to say to them, well, what you have is fine if you're content with being a member of the B team. It, you know, I mean, there's varsity and then there's JV. And if you really want to be among the elite within the Christian faith, you need to follow me. And we've got a set of rights, we've got a set of practices. We've got a set of ascetic, legalistic beliefs that will really bring you into the top tier. But what they do is they, are, they just puffs them up and it is based on arrogant sensuality. They feed their sinful natures by appearing to starve them or through the seeking of extra-biblical experiences, rites, and rituals. And in contrast to all that, Paul says this, let no one disqualify you because your faith in Jesus Christ through that you are connected to the head Jesus Christ and more than that you as you stay connected to him the whole body of Christ is nourished and grows in a way that is from God in other words God feeds you through your connection to other believers as you're all connected to the head, Jesus Christ, the whole body grows together into a, with a growth that is from God. And by the way, what does that imply about all these other things? That it may produce growth, but it is not from God. By the way, cancer cells grow. But they're not from God. They're not healthy growth. And false teaching is to the body of Christ like cancer is to your physical body. And it needs to be cut out. 
and let no one who, who believes in cancer convince you that all the growth they're experiencing is from God. Now, in addition to identifying these errors in contrast to real spiritual life and growth, Paul does something else that's very helpful in verses 20 to 23, uh, which is telling the Colossians and us that not only are these things wrong, but they're also useless because they don't actually give you what their proponents claim. Look at the text with me. I want to I show you this quickly here before we wrap up. Uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, this is the second time in this chapter that Paul has referred to the elemental spirits of the world. It's a Greek technical term that refers to the so-called gods that the Colossians worshipped before they came to faith in Christ. Before they came to faith uh, in Christ, they were alive to these things, and these things uh, were the point of their life, and their, and their worship and their life was all devoted to following these beings. But now they are dead to these things, and they are alive to Christ. And Paul's point is that since they died to all these things, they should not submit any longer to the earthly regulations that go along with them. The false teachers said things like, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Uh, and in citing them, Paul is making, he is um, talking about, in specific terms, all of the taboos that these false teachers attach to food and drink. And the problem with these regulations, Paul says, is multifaceted. First, they deal with things that are perishable, not things that are eternal. Food spoils. Even good wine goes bad eventually. All of these things are perishable. And on top of that, they are things that as you use them, get consumed. And you remember what Jesus said about these things? He said, food cannot make a person clean or unclean because food goes into the stomach and then what remains of it passes out of the body. And it never in the entire process touches your soul. Food and drink are just that. They're just food and drink. They are perishable things, not eternal things. Your soul is not affected by what you eat and what you drink. They don't touch your inner person. And the second problem, if you look at the text carefully, it says these are mere human precepts and regulations. They don't come from God. And that leads to the third problem, which is that they appear wise. That word appear is doing a lot of work in that phrase. He says, look, they, they look wise on the surface. But that leads to the fourth problem, which is that they're futile and useless in actually dealing with your sinful nature. They look good, but they don't work. 
They are the equivalent of a movie prop. Have you, have you all ever been to, been to some place like uh, Universal Studios or, or maybe down to Disney World? They let you in the back lot and they show you all the movie prompts. And it looks good. And man, on camera, it's convincing. But in reality, looks good is all it does. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't actually accomplish what it promises. And you can't get soul, the soul transformation that you need from severe treatment of your body. It doesn't work that way. You can't get it from mysticism. Uh, the errors that, that uh, make promises that are not worth the pain because they don't actually do anything. They leave you further away from God. In fact, to the extent that they work, they bring you further away from God rather than closer to Him. Now, this text was not written to us. It was written to the church at Colossae, but it was written for us. And it emphasizes two very important things that we need to remember as we follow Jesus together. One day, all of the restrictions that we have currently in place uh, on gathering together for worship are going to be lifted. But we still are following Jesus together regardless. However distant from one another we are, we can still follow Jesus together. And as we do, we need to recognize two very important truths that this text makes clear. One is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Let me be very clear on that. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You can't add asceticism to Jesus. You can't add legalism onto Jesus. You can't add mysticism onto Jesus and get a vital spiritual life. What you will get is a taxidermist model. I don't know if you, if you have any taxidermy at your house. I have some at mine. And what it is, is a foam Literally, foam form with glass eyes and you stretch the tanned leather skin over a styrofoam form and it looks alive but is dead. Now I happen to think in my office it looks really cool. But I'm not expecting life from that thing. And, and if you're expecting to add something to Jesus and get life, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you try these, if you try to add something to Jesus, you will get the opposite of life. In the same way that if you add strychnine or arsenic to your Gatorade, you will not get your thirst quenched, except on a permanent basis. It will take away your life. It will not give you life. False teachers and false teaching always give you some kind of additional hoops to jump through. Some additional book they want you to read. Some additional practices that you have to incorporate into your life. Some list of restrictions on the things that God has given you for your blessing, some experience that you need to have before you can really grow to maturity in Christ. 
But Jesus is the head of the body. And He causes all things to grow as they stay connected to Him and to Him alone. And that brings me to my last point that I'm going to make today, which is this. Hold fast to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. Just as the New Testament teaches, just as the earliest church fathers proclaimed, just as the Reformation divines celebrated, it is faith in Jesus Christ alone. That it is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that we are saved. It is Jesus alone that saves us from sin and death and hell. And it is still true every single day. That as we cling to Jesus and faith in Him alone, we grow together in maturity in Christ. So we need to keep growing up to maturity just as we were taught from the beginning. We need to pray and seek the Father and His leading for our lives through our Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit. We need to keep reading our Bibles so that you know God and so that you know His will, that you might follow Christ fully. You need to still fellowship and serve with your fellow believers so that you might continue to grow and stay connected by the joints and ligaments that link you to Christ our head. Just be faithful to hold fast to Christ who holds fast to you. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You give us this passage that is a plumb line for us that helps us to see where correct teaching is, and where there is teaching that is out of plumb with the straight line that Your Word draws. Father, help us to hold fast to Jesus. We know that He holds fast to us, that He holds us in His hands, and that You hold uh, Him and us in Your hands, and that no one can take us out. But Father, let us not get distracted by error. Let us not be led astray. Let us not taxidermy our faith because we fell into error. Father, let us enjoy the beauty and the truth and the joy of life in Jesus. And Father, we pray that by Your Holy Spirit You would help us to discern any errors we have sucked in and spit them out. And to hold fast to Jesus Christ and Him alone. As we grow in community together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.